Welcome to Thoughtlines, a podcast exploring the freshest and most unconventional thinking at CRASH, the Centre for Research in the Arts, Social Sciences and Humanities at the University of Cambridge. I'm Catherine Galloway, and in this episode, we're getting our teeth into food. Today I'm talking to Dr Melissa Calarezu, cultural historian and Neil McKendrick lecturer in history at the University of Cambridge. She's written on everything from ice cream to the history of ideas, and her blockbuster exhibition Feast and Fast at the city's Fitzwilliam Museum this year looked at the art of food in Europe from 1500 to 1800. Co-curated with the museum's Keeper of Applied Arts, Dr Vicky Avery, the show combined the elite spectacle of the banqueting table with humble household account books and the everyday comforts of cake. Dr. Calarezu, hello. Hi, hello. Delighted to meet you. Thank you. This is one of the more unusual meeting points I've ever had. Meet me by the pineapples. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me what's so important about pineapples, because there's a great big one outside the museum and a whole case dedicated to pineapples here in your exhibition. Yes, so there um, are lots of things to say about pineapples. I mean, surprisingly, lots of things to say. Um, they are first discovered, in quotation marks, at the very end of the 15th century um, by an Italian merchant who was accompanying Columbus. So they're very much part of the sort of discovery of the new world. And that gave them, uh, if you want, power, uh, imaginary power, um, through into the um, 17th century. They were very much associated with the new world, with exoticism, with the tropics. Um, they were also very rare. Yes. Um, because it didn't travel very well. And I think that's what's really interesting about the pineapple. Its rarity is very much linked to the fact that by the time it reached any of these courtly tables, it would have been rotten. So no um, European in Europe eats a pineapple in the early modern period. They try and start growing pineapples in temperate climates, um, really from the 17th century in Holland and later in England as well. They don't quite yet know what they're going to get. If they've never tasted one, no. they're just drawn at first then to the, to the look of it and the fact that it's the ultimate fashionable accessory, gardening challenge, unattainable wonderfulness, but they don't quite know what they're going to get at the end of it. No, and in fact, if you look at descriptions in the early modern um, period of the pineapple, they really describe it in many ways as rose water, as different kinds of fruits, as peaches and grapes. And people make these descriptions almost always without having tasted the pineapple. So it becomes this food that, it, food that attracts all this kind of imaginary attention. A fantasy fruit. A wow. And um, But by the 1750s, I think your, your display is suggesting Europe was in the grip of full-blown what you call pineapple mania and what we're looking at here is I mean it's not just pineapples it's pineapple shaped teapots and pineapple jelly molds and pineapple ice cream molds what's going on well, because um, um, only the very rich could grow a pineapple and people by this time were actually growing pineapples um, most people wanted to have a pineapple in other forms, and so a flummery or an ice cream or even a teapot. Um, and so the, the motif itself becomes sort of associated with the exoticism and people wanted it because of that. But I think it's interesting that you couldn't eat a pineapple, but you could have an ice cream that looked like a pineapple, a flummery that looked like a pineapple on your table. 
would it be a pineapple flavored ice cream? Well, I mean, no one knew what they tasted like. So right. they could be, in fact, the, um, the 18th century ice cream board that we used for the poster for the exhibition, um, the ice cream inside is actually Marks and Spencer's mango sorbet. <laughs> I love it. But it would have been, the idea would have been that you would have filled it with something that was supposed to taste like pineapple. Wow. Tell me who was successful in growing pineapples. Clearly there was a bit of a race on to be the first person to make one grow from scratch. Yeah. So there is competition between the English and the Dutch primarily in growing pineapples and then growing them in greenhouses called pineries. Oh, wow. um, and there's a whole sort of science around the growing the pineapple, including thermometers and different kinds of soil to, 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 to be used to grow these pineapples. And in fact, we've got a picture of a pineapple, oh, yes. of a particular pineapple, which was, was grown by Matthew Decker, who was Fitzwilliam's grandfather. Fitzwilliam was the founder of the Fitzwilliam Museum. And this... So, his, so here we are in the Fitzwilliam Museum, and this is his grandfather, who was a pineapple... Uh, well, sort of pioneer, really. Yeah, he's a pineapple pioneer. So he's Dutch, he came to Holland from England, so he brought a lot of this horticultural knowledge with him. Mm -hmm. And then he became this sort of very celebrated, um, not he didn't garden it himself, but celebrated grower of this particular pineapple in Richmond in London, outside of London. Um, and so there, there, there is this connection of the pineapple to the Fitzwilliam, not only in this portrait, which actually normally hangs above a doorway in the Dutch gallery, but also on the outside of Fitzwilliam, the railings actually have pineapples on them. Finials on them. So that was one of the reasons why we really want to include the pineapple in the exhibition because of that Cambridge connection. So the Pineapple Road leads directly to the foundation of this museum. Absolutely. Amazing. <laughs> Absolutely. So Melissa, there's that very common phrase, we are what we eat, and that sounds so simple. But in your career, you've unpacked that idea to quite a remarkable degree. And this exhibition is part of that. But you've also gone much further. What made you first think that food was the thing you were going to focus on? Gosh, um, well, I didn't start working on food. My PhD is in the history of political thought. Okay. On late 18th century uh, Neapolitan thinker called Francesco Mario Pagano. And it is an entirely two-dimensional PhD, I mean history, um, history of two-dimensional texts. There's no materiality in it. But I really had no idea when I started that this is where I would end up. It comes from a number of things. It comes from working with Peter Burke, who's a very well-known uh, cultural historian. Um, I ran a seminar with him for many years. I was made Neil McKendrick lecturer in history at Keyes, and Neil McKendrick is really well known for his uh, history of Wedgwood and of porcelain and of consumption. So very early on, um, he was doing history of consumption within British historiography. And I think probably the most important thing that shifted me towards material culture, which I'll get, eventually get to food, was um, handling sessions in the Fitzwilliam many years ago. We started about 10 years ago bringing undergraduates into the museum. Oh. So I ended up taking uh, my interest in intellectual history alongside an, a kind of interest, increasing interest in material culture and wrote that piece on the making and selling an ice cream in Naples. I wanted to join up the intellectual history I'd done with this sort of newer interest in the sort of, if you want, the cultural life of the city. And that's really where it started. I was going to ask you about the ice cream interest. I think quite possibly that is literally the coolest subject <laughs> for an academic article I have ever heard. Um, how did you choose ice cream? Why is ice cream and ice important? So if you look at the confectioner's window that we've got in the exhibition, um, 
the ice cream that was made and uh, sold to aristocrats in London in in, in the 18th century um, was extremely expensive. It was absolutely a luxury good. And in Naples, I could see that it was actually something that people were eating. There are lots and lots of images of Neapolitans eating ice cream. And I wasn't quite sure what to do with these images. So popular Neapolitans, people on the street eating ice cream. And there seemed to be a contrast between the you know, idea of ice cream as a luxury good and the porcelain and things that were made to eat ice cream in England and France and what clearly was a whole range of kinds of social groups eating ice cream. And so I wanted to kind of flip around the paradigm around this idea of what is a luxury um, in, uh, in the 18th century and what kind of sociability is enlightened sociability. So in the north, it's a coffee shop. In the south, it might be actually an ice cream shop. All the interest in, in food is not just what it is and who's eating what when, but it's how we're eating and, w- and what it tells other people about mm-hmm. who we are. My interest is not really driven from eating at the table, but eating people eating on the street and buying food on the street. Getting away from thinking about food history is simply a history about the table and about elite dining to a kind of much broader history of ordinary eating. But when we talk about food, of course, it is the most transient and ephemeral thing. I mean, mm. you've hinted at the fact that not much survives, mm. or only the, the sort of the porcelain and the silver that was on the high-end tables survived, but the everyday eating and drinking doesn't survive. Does that make it hard to study, and how have you got around that? Okay, that's a great question. Ordinary eating is a little bit more difficult, um, but the way to do it is looking at things like food regulation, how food was regulated in terms of selling, in terms of it selling on the street, in terms of the quality of the food as well. So a lot of the work that I've done started with images, Okay. And they were a bit of a mystery. All these images of people eating food on the street. And there are lots and lots of images for Italy, um, and particularly Naples, um, for eating food on the street. Plus these um, very detailed financial records related to taxation, which is really unexpected. Um, partly, again, if you want to think about turning around p- paradigms as well, people think of Naples as a highly chaotic city. Right. Um, and that's one of the things that people write about when they first go to Naples in the 18th century, but it's highly regulated. So all this sort of economy of the street is highly regulated because it's partly the fiscal interests of the state, but they're also worried about making sure that people can get through streets, that streets are, you know, you can pass through a street. Um, and also that the food is of good quality and not, you know, rotten or um, going to be, you know, bad, bad for people one way or another. You've looked very closely at the Welsh painter Thomas Jones. Now he wrote down for the entire three years he was in Naples from 1780 to 1783, he wrote down every single day what he bought and what he ate. Mm. How do you how do you start to work with a document like that? Mm. Um, so you could see that um, set of accounts as a representation of a reality, and it might be a reality of what he and his family ate, um, a what, um, but there's a lot more in those accounts. There is his relationship with a common-law wife, Maria, who's this Danish woman. There are two little children that are growing up in that household, so you can see, for instance, the, the money paid to a nursing maid every month, for instance, okay. or shoes being repaired. Um, what else can you see? His his kind of transformation into an, a Neapolitan, really, as, as someone who is eating as a Neapolitan. And that's one of the things I know you asked me the question earlier about identity. 
It's so interesting because he's there as someone who's a Welsh painter. He's been in Italy for four years. He clearly speaks Italian. But you can see in the accounts the sound of the Neapolitan pronunciation of certain words or even the Neapolitan, you know, the Neapolitan word itself. So he's a... you can kind of see his immersion, actually, kind he's of through. assimilating. Yeah, he's assimilating in, in, a, in kind of Neapolitan food culture. By showing us what they ate, you're showing us who they are. Exactly. Melissa, there's one other very, very tiny book that caught my eye in one of the cases here. Now, this is a notebook kept by Isaac Newton before he was... Sir Isaac Newton, famous scientist. He was just rather a homesick first-year undergraduate at Trinity College in Cambridge. It's June 1661. He's 17 years old. He's having a bit of a tough time at Trinity. And so he starts writing down everything he's eating. Tell me what he's buying. He's buying a whole range of what we think of well, we've thought of his comfort foods. Um, so they're expenses that are not necessary. He obviously a little bit anxious and guilty about them. Um, in fact, he calls them idle and vain expenses. And they include cherries, tart, marmalade, custards, and cake bread. Um, we love this little book, partly because it started off as a Latin grammar book. If you flip it around, it was a book used by Newton when he, before he came to Cambridge, and there are actually Latin grammar exercises in it. And when he got to Trinity, he flipped it around and started putting these expenses in. I mean, he was doing what actually all young, all people were meant to do in this period is write down their accounts. But these accounts are very special things. Obviously, he must have missed home or missed the, you know, the baked goods of home um, and managed to find them in Cambridge and included them in these accounts. The thing that just so struck me was, you know, we know Isaac Newton, the, the person, the legend, but this makes him so human, mm. so real to me. Um, in a way that he's never been before. Just seeing his handwriting and seeing him probably rather miserably at the end of the day writing down that he's accidentally bought another couple of slices of cake because he's having <laughs> rather a bad time. And you just feel for him. It, it's not just a dry document, is it? No, no. It's sort of extraordinarily evocative. And I think especially for Isaac Newton, who is often known as a man who was, um, sometimes he's called a sort of disembodied philosopher, that he was someone who was infamous really for not really caring that much about food, that he wrote Principia on bread and water. I mean, there's a whole um, series of myths around Newton and his body and Newton's attitude to food. Um, and this really demonstrates that actually, like lots of undergraduates, he was homesick and he did want to eat some of these comfort foods. Custard makes it better, Isaac. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Brilliant. But there's a darker side to all of this sweetness, isn't there? Why is sugar becoming cheaper? I mean, because of the efficiency of the slavery system in the Caribbean. Right. And so there's an absolute um, connection, relationship between the price of sugar going down and slavery becoming much more efficient by the end of the 18th century. So we were really keen to, to have that thread through the uh, exhibition, not only in relation to the making of sugar, 
objects like these ones, but also the very messy and difficult production uh, processing of sugar in the Caribbean as well had to be part of the story. If you're doing an exhibition about globalization, you have to talk about slavery because it's so essential to the economy in the early modern period, the European economy, just as fossil fuels are essential to you know, investment in the last 100 years. Um, and as you know, there is an ongoing um, discussion in the university about, about slavery. Absolutely. Um, and so we wanted to kind of signal that in a way that uh, linked it up to this sort of beautiful, extraordinary kind of um, displays of sugar alongside actually a much sadder and sorrier sort of story. Sir, since we did ourselves the pleasure of writing to you on the 24th of December by last packet, we have settled with Mr. Bromfield for the purchase of his gang of Negroes. They amount, you will observe, to 5,100 pounds currency. We hope this settlement, as well as the purchase of itself, will meet with your approbation. The Negroes were delivered upon the 3rd of last month and have ever since been at work settling the pen at Grange Hill and are happy and contented with the situation there. My goodness, um, these are names. And these, these are, are actually under women. There you can see Peggy, May. Industry, Flora. Strawberry. These are not items, these are people. Yeah, exactly. And if you look a little bit farther up, you can also see um, some of the names of the men, um, January, February, June. And I always oh, am struck by this. And that's their age. And next to it, the column says valuation. That's right. And, and then being how much they were... For. Yes, that's right, exactly. And then they'll tell, say what their sort of job is or their function, so cook or someone working in the field or a carpenter. Um, and I always stop here with my students because I think if you're someone from Afro-Caribbean heritage and you have a, possibly a kind of slave history, um, it's impossible to do your family tree, uh, uh, you know, past a certain point because actually you end up with these lists which are entirely anonymous. There's no sort of last name. There's one name, February. So now historians of slavery are trying to use these objects, reading against the grain to try and recover the voices of February, January, industry, these people who have no last names. Are we eating right? I mean, there's this whole notion of eating right, ethical eating. What does that even mean? What did it mean then okay. in the period that you're looking at? And what does it mean now? Has it changed? Okay, it has changed quite significantly because eating right in the early modern period was about the humours. And so we were, we, every person was made of four humours and you ate according to those humours. So if you were wet, then you ate dry food. And if you were dry, you ate wet food or hot or cold food. Um, and you were meant to find a balance between your body, which was a certain humour, and these other foods which offered sort of balances to those humours. So eating right really was related to that. I mean, this is, of course, an elite concern, but it's also a concern... And it's also a language that's used, uh, you know, f fairly far down the social scale. With this interest in growing interest in, in, in food security yeah. and ethical eating again, you know, saving the planet, we eat less meat, rise of veganism among particularly a younger generation. And here I'm talking to you right now at a moment of panic buying, stockpiling because of the coronavirus. This is what's going on at the moment. Supermarket shelves are being mm. stripped. 
what we're choosing to buy now, what we're choosing to stockpile, tells us a lot about what we value and who we are, doesn't it? I think it's important to remember that most people don't have enough to eat in the early modern period um, and their diet is relatively monotonous. It's also seasonal. Um, the only people who are beating the seasons, who are eating the pineapples and the oranges, are the rich. So everyone else is necessarily eat, eating seasonally. Um, and it's, you know, fairly monotonous and it depends where you are. If you're from Piedmont, you eat lots of chestnuts throughout the year. And I think if you're in, um, you know, in Scotland, you're eating lots of porridge. So there are like food types related to the, to the regions as well. People um, couldn't stockpile in the same way. They spent a lot of time preserving and conserving. So I guess that's a form of stockpiling that every summer they're making sure that all the vegetables and things that they're growing in their gardens end up in big pots under sugar, under salt. Um, and that was a way of really stockpiling and diminishing the possibilities of not having enough to, enough to eat in the wintertime. So there's a kind of embedded in this seasonal system is, is stockpiling. Would the people in the... 1600s and 1700s have been absolutely horrified by the way we eat now. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, of course. I mean, I think the whole supermarket thing and the plastic and I mean, it's just so far away. I mean, I think it's not so much horror, but I think for sure wonder um, because they were really eating seasonally absolutely what was growing and there are very short seasons in which you know all of a sudden you had a glut of strawberries or a glut of asparagus and of course one of the things you want to do is try and preserve those flavors and I guess maybe the memories as well and the joys of eating them for winter time so putting them under salt or putting them under sugar or in syrup. Something that you're starting to move into now in terms of your academic research is something called plant humanities. Now, I've never heard of that. Tell me what it is. Okay. Well, it's trying to sort of combine humanities, so history and literature, in relation to the plant sciences. Botanists, for instance, um, and in my case, a historian. Um, we've got a project on the pineapple. The conference on the pineapple was an attempt to try and kickstart a collaboration with people within the university, so within Cambridge University. People in the plant sciences department, the botanic gardens with historians and literature people to start thinking about what we can learn from the plant scientists. I know that you're thinking about plants and medicine mm. as well. Um, where's that going to go? There's a whole um, section of the exhibition, the sort of body physic and mm. things that you eat to heal yourself. But I know that you're planning a much more extensive project in the future. Could you tell me a little more about that? Yeah, so that's about buying and consuming um, drugs in the early modern period. So it sounds kind of, you know, exciting. It really is about plant-based drugs and it's about the material culture pharmacies. And it will be a project which... Um, it involves a collaboration of pharmacies in Naples or early modern pharmacies in Naples, uh, Barcelona, Bern and Venice, as well as Cambridge. Um, it is really, I think, representative of the way in which humanities research is going, which is more collaborative. Um, we do want to engage also with plant scientists working in these fields as well, um, as well as with the archival material that are in these pharmacies, but really also the objects that are surviving in these pharmacy collections. So how the medicine was stored or dozed out or measured. That's right. And distilled and made into powders and, you know, made into pastilles and things like that as well. And there my interest in the street uh, comes through as well because I'm quite interested in the things that are being sold on the street. So a whole range of kinds of drugs, which in many cases are, you know, kind of medicinal remedies, plant remedies. I mean, we wouldn't necessarily recognize them as drugs, but probably as, as health remedies or plant remedies on the street. 
in various forms to a whole wide range of, of kinds of people as well. Now, Melissa, we've been in these beautiful, opulent spaces of the exhibition uh, until now, where the walls are painted this beautiful, inky black, where the items that you've chosen really pop out. And then suddenly, the last room is this bright orange. And this is the outreach room. This is the room where people get to engage and think about their own relationships with food. And I see here the feedback wall. It says, your three favorite feast and fast related words last week were smell, enjoyment, and cooking. And then you've got lots of things that people have created um, in response to what you've put together. How does, how does this all fit in for you? Okay, so this room is meant to be painted in a color close to pineapple. <laughs> It's a pineapple room, of the course pineapple it is. room. Of course and it is. it is our creative response room. Vicky Avery is the curator of applied arts here, and she's the person with whom I've curated this exhibition. So you can see that some of the exhibits are actually in this room as well. Yeah. These ceramics um, and a couple of three paintings are part of this creative response space. That's quite unusual. Normally you wouldn't have these spaces shared. It would be a space, a creative response space would be in an art room, for instance. But right. we were really keen to have the creative response room here, but alongside some of the exhibits as well. And we've got two kinds of exhibits in this room. We've got the museum pieces, so the paintings. But on the other side, we've actually got some objects made by some of our community partner groups. You can see they're labeled and displayed in exactly the same way as any of the early modern objects. These objects here are actually made by an art center here in Cambridge called Rowan Art Center, uh, who teach adults with learning disabilities. And these are objects that were made uh, in response to the exhibition. And we involved them quite early on, just like the undergraduates, we involved them very early on with handling sessions. Talk to them about like how they should be displayed, um, what they thought was most interesting about them. And then they responded to that by making these ceramics. So we've got this um, jug, which is a response to one of the jugs in the production part of the exhibition. But also at the very end of the exhibition, you can see these fake profiteroles. It's amazing, realistic China profiteroles, complete with sticky chocolate sauce. But what's also fascinating is that displaying community art and um, ordinary people, for want of a better word, art, alongside the conventional museum pieces, and as you say, displaying them in exactly the same way, those food memory plates there yeah. are stunning. Plates with a lot of detail on them and words stamped around the side, such as when I was a little girl, I went camping on the Isle of Wight I had ice cream and we picked blackberries and we see very clearly a child eating an ice cream, holding hands with a mother and blackberries wrapped around and here's the profiteroles plate. I have profiteroles or cheesecake with my lunch. I eat them quickly because they taste nice. Oh, these are gorgeous. Yeah, they are really beautiful. And it's just such a pleasure to work with all three community groups. They are meant to be groups that wouldn't normally come into the museum. Yeah. And it has really transformed their relationship with the Fitzwilliam. They've been in here about four or five times since then, coming in to do drawing, and it feels like their place. So it's been really transformative, I think, for them as well. And what is more levelling than food? Mm. It's the most democratic thing of all. We are all daily concerned with what we eat, what we're producing, who we're feeding, why we're doing it. Also just the simple enjoyment of food, right? I mean, I yeah. think that's probably the most universal thing. I mean, I think any, anyone would be able to answer the question, what do you like best? You know, what food do you like best? I think everyone would have an answer to that. Mm -hmm.
Would you describe yourself as a foodie? Okay, um, yes. <laughs> I'll admit it. I do love food. My father was Italian and my grandmother was Italian. And my, grandfa- my father was a great cook. Oh. And he made a lot of northern Italian food for us. And my mum cooked as well. She was interested in, like, Chinese food. She did and lots of, like... Um, kind of hippie 1970s sort of fashionable food. She made her own yogurt, that kind of thing. So the two of them actually represent different kinds of food histories. Um, but I, my father's now dead. I um, I know I do still some of the same recipes, so they're really important to me. You know, That's heritage. From, yeah, exactly. So um, I, yeah, I, I, I do get up every morning, think about what I'm going to make that evening um, or the next day. And my whole Italian family actually is like that. But I'm not a foodie in the sense um, I don't spend a lot of money on food. I don't go to fancy restaurants. I'm not always trying to get the kind of best or most exotic or whatever. Um, I actually get a lot of pleasure in sort of like ordinary food, but food that also has a kind of meaning. What's your kitchen like at home? What what kind of thing do you do as your comfort food, as your Isaac Newton? Yeah, so the comfort food is really the kids' food. So I think most, because I'm still cooking for, you know, some children at home. And although they're teenagers, they're, they're not really cooking very much. So I'm hoping... Big consumers, though. Yeah, they're big consumers. I mean, their father... Um, is he's Catalan, so they, he also cooks for them. So they get both Catalan and Italian, Canadian food. I made a lot of Canadian cakes, actually. Uh-huh. My absolute, in fact, that's what I would say. My probably comfort food for me, and which has become the comfort food for my children, is something called Johnny Cake, which is a kind of cornmeal cake, which you serve with maple syrup. Okay. It comes from a Mennonite recipe book from southwestern Ontario. So and that, that was passed to you from your mother? Yeah. Exactly, yeah. So a lot of baking. I did a lot of baking as a child. Lots of baking because my mother never let us have store-bought cookies. So I'd always bake when I came home from school. And then picked up the sort of Italian repertoire from my father later on. So, I mean, I am a foodie, but not in a really precious way at all. So Johnny Cake would definitely be in your last supper? Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Anything else? (laughs) Have to have the maple syrup to go with it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, gosh, probably um, pasta with... Um, pepperoncino and garlic probably in oil if the oil was good <laughs> great choice that's amazing thank you very much indeed um dr melissa calarezu for sharing some of your thought lines with us today it's been a fascinating journey thought lines is presented by me Catherine galloway and produced by carl homer for cambridge tv on behalf of crash the Centre for Research in the Arts, Social Sciences and Humanities at the University of Cambridge. Join us again next time for more academic thinking outside the box. Music